everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, spectrum disorders, treatment of those things, and uh, getting your life back. My name is Kevin Foss. I am a licensed clinician specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. Uh, thank you all for joining me on this episode. Um, uh, I, I, As always, to all of you listeners out there, new listeners, old listeners, I appreciate you spending the time and joining me for this episode. Um, if you like the show, please feel free or please remember either one, I suppose, to uh, to like the show, to subscribe to the show, to um, write a review for the show. Again, all those things just help other people to find it. I don't do any real advertising. I'm not good at spreading the word about this, but all of you found it. If you like the show, again, please feel free to Tell someone about this. Tell your therapist about it. Tell a friend about it. Tell your group members about it. Um, word of mouth is going to be the best form of advertisement this podcast could ever get. Um, and uh, also, everybody, if you are an old listener, I mentioned this on a previous episode, if you have listened before and you said, man, you know what? It's a good show, but it could be better. Guess what? Now is your opportunity to tell me how to make it better better. So if you would like to offer me some feedback on how to make the show just a little bit better, go over to fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey. Again, fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey. There's a couple of questions up there. It'll probably take you five to 10 minutes to fill that thing out. I do not ask for any information from you, uh, like your name or email address. It can be completely anonymous, but I just would love to hear your honest feedback about what I can do to make this show better, more of something, less of something, something entirely brand new. I've gotten some answers, and uh, all of them are really, really good. All the suggestions are really, really good, and uh, I'm going to start incorporating those into future episodes. So uh, if you have some uh, I, 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 either ideas, uh, <laughs> not necessarily ideas, I don't necessarily need uh, you to say, do a whole different thing, do a cooking segment. Um, if you suggest it, I will take the information and consider it. I'll probably not do a cooking segment. But um, if there are some things that you like and want me to do more of, if, you things, if there are things that you just hate about the show and you want me to do less of, perhaps yammering on like this, let me know. I do want to take uh, your advice, take your suggestion, and, and I will take it seriously. If you are new to the show and uh, all of the survey uh, uh, yammering that I just had uh, didn't make any sense to you, uh, if you're new to the show, the FearCast is a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, get to email me uh, if you'd like. And uh, uh, you can email me your questions about uh, anxiety treatment, about anxiety disorders, about stuff that you can be afraid of, about the, the pantheon of OCD that can exist. Um, if you have a loved one with OCD, if you just kind I want to know more, and, and there's some some specific questions that you have about OCD and anxiety treatment. Man, if you want to challenge me with some questions about OCD and anxiety disorders, feel free to email me. You can go to fearcastpodcast.com, and you can go to the Ask a Question link, and uh, you can uh, message me there. I read every question, and uh, I, I will look at it, review it, consider an answer for you, and I will likely put it on a future episode, just like this one. So with this episode, I'm going to be going through three, count them, 
three questions. Things are expanding. So I'm answering more questions and uh, I've gotten the tip that people seem to like the random order of things as opposed to just collections of the same type of symptoms. So that is what we're going to continue to do. Again, if you hate it and all of a sudden because of this, everyone goes, gosh, that's a dumb suggestion. I hate that about the show. Let me know if it just becomes overwhelming that people want batched sort of answers. Well, I will consider making some of those changes in the future. But until then, we're going to keep going randomly. So as some of you guys noticed, uh, the the show is typically on an every other week schedule. Uh, I found that schedule to be pretty reasonable uh, with my work schedule, life schedule, stuff like that. But I took last week off and you're probably going, man, what is Kevin doing in the pandemic that seems so much fun that he's going and doing? It's not. I was not having fun. What I was doing was, one, training somebody. So I'm uh, Cal OCD. My, my private practice has, uh, has hired somebody. So I got to train them. So they will be joining the practice and taking on clients uh, soon. Um, additionally, uh, last week, the reason why I did not uh, put out an episode is because my uh, little girl got sick. And uh, this was the first time she got really sick. So she got um, her, her fever just spiked up in a day. And it was... Um, you know, she's had little fevers before, you know, 100, 101, fever, normal fever types of stuff. Her fever got up to 105. It was a little scary. So some of the uh, pediatricians out there, doctors, or just people who are in the know, they're going to go, 105, get to a hospital yesterday. Um, and that was kind of the worry. We, you know, called a bunch of doctors and got her on some Tylenol and stuff like that. And uh, it, it was really, um, it was a long couple of days. But luckily, she, uh, you know, responded well to Tylenol and all that stuff. And her fever came down and it was just kind of a sleepless weekend for us. But she's back to normal. She's feeling good. She's back to the terror that she normally is. Uh, delightful, delightful terror, obviously. But that is why I, I did not put out an episode. So thank you all for your patience. And um, But we, we are back on, and uh, hopefully there will be, uh, I, I won't have to miss uh, too much more. By the way, to that point, during the whole uh, debacle of her being sick, um, I did the thing that um, I typically don't do, which is I went to Dr. Google. So uh, but reasonable. During the pandemic, we're all going, well, I wonder if I got COVID. Like any sort of thing that we get, um, you know, health-wise, our brain might go, you might have the COVIDs. And especially because, you know, I'm out here in Southern California, we, uh, the whole state is on fire right now and we are downwind from it, like to, to the point where my, my car is covered in ash in the morning. Uh, it's like snow, except on fire. Because of all the schmutz in the air, I'm getting more congested. So I get more congested. I sound more snorky. If I sound more snorky, it's because I am. Um, but it's just what my silly lungs do. So you know, I've been feeling this way. Um, but I went online. It was like, well, you know, I wonder what um, COVID symptoms are in uh, in children, specifically two year old children. You know what the symptoms are? Everything. It's everything. Anything that you could have is a symptom of COVID. The, the symptoms that are listed, it's like headache, fever, stomach ache, hot flashes, cold flashes, um, congestion, coughing, um, you know, aches and pains. It's like, yeah, that's, that's everything. It was really unhelpful for, for me because you go, well, okay, if she, let's say she does, then what? Then I could get it. And knowing my lungs, it's, it might not go very well. So 
there was a fun little tailspin that uh, that went on around the Foss House. Um, but luckily, um, you know, slowed all that right down, said, you know what, we're going to wait. We're going to wait to see what happens. I followed my own advice. We did talk to a real doctor about the kiddo, and uh, they seemed to not be very concerned. You know what, we're going to go with what the doctor said, and then we're going to wait. We're going to see what happens. And you know what? It's been a week. No one seems to have COVID, at least as of yet. Um, obviously, there can be the incubation time and all that stuff that you hear about. But you know what? We're going to keep going until we have evidence and real proof or really confident uh, a, a confident body of information that would suggest maybe we ought to be worried. But until then, we're not going to be worried. And we'll see what happens. So if in the future episode you hear that I developed COVID, um, you know that potentially we made a mistake. But that is future me's problem. And to you, dear listeners, that is future us's problem. Right? Right. All right. So without further ado, let's jump into the questions. Okay, so this first question comes from Hillary. She says... I have health slash illness OCD, amongst other subtypes, she adds, and have a real genetic health condition. I'm actively engaged in using several CBT, acceptance, and ERP strategies on a daily basis with success. This success, however, is short-lived despite all my efforts. It only takes one reminder, whether mentally or environmentally, that the ruminations, feared story, etc., is actually based on something really happening to me in all caps. Uh, it's all real, she says. Once this reminder hits, any respite from the symptoms of OCD is gone, and I spiral all the way back to rock bottom in a matter of hours. Do you have any advice for dealing with this nuanced trigger that sends me so quickly on a tailspin when I've worked so hard to climb back out of the hole over and over? I can't say my OCD is nonsense because it's based on something very real. The very end, she tags on, thank you so much for all that you do. I have a therapist and go to a weekly OCD skills support group, but what you have offered has enriched my therapy more than you will ever know. Hillary, thank you so much for those kind words. Um, again, that this is the whole goal of this whole podcast is to offer extra support, extra advice and guidance um, as needed. But um, uh, obviously, as I say at the end of every episode, the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy, but uh, you're using it as you ought to. It is a supplement. It is something that can be of, uh, of, of further information and further guidance. And again, if you have, if, if anything that I say, I suppose I'll, I'll back this out just to anybody, Hillary, um, but anybody out there, if I say something on this podcast that differs from what your therapist has been talking about, talk to your therapist about it, because it is possible that he or she is giving you guidance and advice based on a, a collection of symptoms, a collection of issues, and a, and a history that you and your therapist share that would explain why it is that they are saying what they are saying, and, and it might differ from what it is that I am saying. Additionally, there are going to be different approaches to all of this OCD, anxiety, ERP, CBT stuff. The way that I talk about it might be different than the way somebody else talks about it. It does not necessarily mean that because I have a fancy podcast that I am the end-all be-all of information, nor does it mean that your therapist is the end-all be-all of information. Um, it is It is. More often than not, when I hear someone share something that is different from what their, their therapist has said, and we talk about it, more often than not, I find that we are actually actually on the same page. We're just using either different language or going about it in a slightly different order. So, 
all of that to say, if something I say differs from what your therapist says, ask your therapist, talk to them about it, because they are going to have an answer and they are going to be guiding you. I am not your therapist. I am just some schmuck in your iPod or some schmuck on an MP3 or in your car or while you are working out. Um, and uh, I'm delighted to be along for the ride. But again, if there are questions, ask your therapist. All right, I think I beat that dead horse enough. Okay, back to Hillary. Um, Hillary, so when I was reading your question, um, I mean, a, a lot of it kind of resonated with me. I mean, as I mentioned, I have um, wonky lungs. That is not the official diagnosis. Um, but uh, I've had lung surgery. I've had sinus surgery. Uh, I've had sinus surgery twice. They removed a portion of my lungs. So, um, and, and it is a genetic condition that will affect me my entire life. I might have more surgeries. It has certainly affected other surgeries that I've had. Um, so, yeah. I, so, I don't know what your genetic health condition is, but um, this hit me right in the feels. I know what this is like. And uh, it can be scary, especially when you hear something, read something, see something that reminds you, oh, yeah, I've got that thing. And that thing could have a tremendous impact on my life, on my survival, on the length or brevity of my life. Right. So, that, I mean, that is a, a story, I guess, suppose for myself that I may share in more in detail because it certainly impacts my anxiety um, from time to time and um, in, in other areas that we will talk about at another time. But again, you, Hillary, I keep getting distracted, Hillary. Apologize. Um, all right. So back to it. So with, with all of this, I suppose the, my, my biggest question is going to be, because you, you, you want to know how you can best to deal uh, with the nuance, uh, with this nuanced trigger that sends you back into that tailspin, as you said. So my question is going to be, well, what, what is the fear for you? What is that feared story, right? What is the tailspin all about? Is it that the health condition is eventually going to kill you? So you go back into that thought process. Is it that you're sad that you have it? which I certainly understand. Is it that you're, you fear that your life is diminished because of it um, or that your life won't be the same as it was before? Or there's that comparison to other people. You're not going to be as happy as this other person. You're not going to be as free or as healthy or as something as this other person. It, does that make sense? So what is that feared story? What is your brain telling you about that? Because that is going to be the, the foundation from which you can start to look at it and challenge the legitimacy of that story. So Hillary, if, if you've listened to any of my other episodes, this really rings or this really resonates with a, a kind of a fun little Venn diagram between health anxiety uh, or hypoch uh, hypochondria or, or excuse me, and hypochondria and Real event OCD. It's not quite the same, I suppose, as real event OCD, but real event OCD, if you go back and listen to a couple episodes back from this one, there is a, a whole episode on it, um, which is uh, probably my most controversial one. Um, but that's a separate conversation. The, the real event OCD is ultimately OCD about something that is true or something that has actually happened. For some, it's going to be a concern about something that they did 20 years ago that they regret, and it's usually something very, very minor. But the difference between real event OCD and other subtypes is that real event OCD has actually happened, whereas the other stuff is mostly about stuff that could happen or might happen or has the potential to happen, um, again, but, but has not. So the reality is that, yes, there is a health concern that you have, a real genetic health condition that sends you into this spiral where it, it, it kind of unhinges you. I'd say it's core. At its core, what you and I will need to do is to practice 
developing some psychological and emotional resiliency within all of this. In other words, to recognize that sometimes in your life, sometimes in my life, we are going to be reminded of our conditions. We are going to be reminded that we have this health concern that has impacted us, that will impact us, and will affect us in, some, in, in various ways. A lot of folks I work with with anxiety across the board, with, with whatever subtype or manifestation or, or whatever the, the mental health concern is, they can feel a, a similar jolt. They can have this feeling that, um, that you know, they, they see Monk on TV and it reminds them that they have OCD. They see a gay character on TV and, and they get that jolt and it reminds them that they have this diagnosis. Um, for some, it's they hear a joke on TV about panic disorder or uh, something to that effect, and it reminds them of, of what they can't do, right? I put that in quotes, what they can't do. I mean, they, it might be this reminder that you're going to live your life and have jolts of anxiety. You're going to have bouts with anxiety and fear from time to time. It might be that, um, that so if this is true for some people who take medication. They get reminded daily or twice a day or whatever frequency they take their medication. This is a reminder that I have a thing that I'm, quote, uh, to use their language, I'm not normal. And it can feel pretty crappy. It can feel bad. And, and I, I get it. We all want to be normal. I put that in quotes, right? We all want to be normal. We don't want to have the thing that we have. But unfortunately, each and every one of us have said this. You probably heard me say this before. Each and every one of us get a thing. All of us do. We either get a mental health thing, we get a physical healthy thing, and the lucky ones of us get both, right? No one gets out of this life without a thing. So what you and I are going to have to do and I think this speaks to what, what your question is about dealing with the nuanced trigger that sends you into this tailspin. Uh, my initial question with ultimately, what is the tailspin? I, I think it's about, you know, what is the obsession? What is the fear uh, that you're trying to climb out of? But that ultimately, you and I are going to have to find a way to live in this tension between the reality that we are, um, quote, not normal, and also that we are not whatever our feared story is. That story isn't really happening yet either. And I, I don't know what your your um, health condition is, but I'm going to take a guess what the feared story is, is likely not happening in the present. But we're going to have to live in this tension, this reality that um, you and I are going to get reminders periodically. And we're going to have to carry on somehow with the reality of our health condition and trying to pursue the life that we actually want to have as best we possibly can. I'll add this. If you're using ERP as a means of trying to get rid of the awareness of the fear, then it could be compulsive. And so the focus ought to be on illustrating that you can have the thought and the fear as you continue to live your life, meaning you can be reminded of your health condition and continue to go to work and continue to have relationships and continue to pursue hobbies and goals and dreams and values, etc., so a couple of the ways that we can deal with this is, is, is first to catch ourselves when we're going through that negative, the negative, the, the compulsive spiral, right? When you start going back into that tailspin, call yourself out for it and take a drastic left turn. And that might mean bringing your active attention towards something of greater value, right? Um, uh, uh, the great and powerful Kelly Frankie and I spoke about this on the uh, Instantgrams um, a couple of days ago. And what we... 
joked and were goonballs about it for about 40 minutes. But um, the whole point was is that we can, in a sense, and appropriately distract ourselves from this story. We're distracting ourselves from the compulsive cycle, not the reality of your health. And we can distract ourselves with, uh, with watching TV, with learning to juggle, with going ice skating, with doing almost anything that's of greater value than going back into that tailspin that you've done uh, a thousand times before. So that can be certainly helpful. Um, and ultimately, what that's going to do is it's going to break this, break the habit of when you have the reminder, you go back and do this thought. Instead, we're not going to do that. We're not going to reinforce this any longer. We're doing other things. The tailspin is not worth your time anymore, Hillary. So this next thing that you can do is it, it, it can seem like a reassurance, um, but it's also bringing rational thought to what's going on. So we can remind ourselves that what's going on in our head is a feared story. When I get caught up in the way that my anxiety or that, excuse me, my physical health could impact my life, it's helpful to remind myself that, you know, that's not happening yet. It could, it could, but it's not happening yet. That's future me's problem, as I've said. What we can do, though, is to remind ourselves, and I think this is actually, I think this is helpful and also encouraging. What am I doing and what can I do right now? Right now, is there anything that I can do that would, that would help in my physical health? Sometimes it's reminding ourselves of what it is that we are doing that's helping, right? Though our brain says, oh, X, Y, or Z is going to happen to me. When it says for me and my, my lungs and respiratory issues, like, well, is there anything I can do? Well, from everything the doctors have told me, no. Other than I had a doctor say, hey, you know the sinus irrigation, the neti pot thing? You're going to do that twice a day for the rest of your life. Otherwise, you're going to keep having sinus surgeries. And I said, when I was told this, you're right, doctor, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I will, and I have. So I do that. So I remind myself, the thing that I am doing, the thing that I can do is the thing that I am doing. Again, that only gets me so far, right? That doesn't take the reality away, but it says I'm not powerless, I think sometimes the tailspin that we get into can be about power and the sadness of the loss. So pull yourself out of that. You can do a quick reminder of that and while you also then go off and do something else that's of greater value. You don't have to then, you don't have to then um, sit only and sit and stew in the pain um, and, and how terrible it's going to be. Now, as you and I are learning that we can tolerate living life and being triggered, because again, it's not, don't get triggered, you're gonna, but... Can I live life and be triggered at the same time? My answer is yes, you absolutely can. The way that we can do that is by doing what I had previously mentioned, and we can also practice it. You can do what I call, or actually what is called, excuse me, environmental exposures. Put reminders of your health conditions all around. In other words, make it so that you cannot escape it. Because sometimes if you are triggered to it, you go, oh, it's that thing and I'm terrible. And you fall back into that hole of sadness, right? Instead, if you see that reminder all of the time, it is less, it will over time become less of a trigger because your brain will go, oh, it, yeah, it's that, yeah, that thing. Yeah, I've seen that sign before, whatever, right? It becomes less of a, uh, of a terror to us. So you can put those up all over the place. In doing so, we're doing this. You and I are living life with the acknowledgement that, yes, you have this condition, but also, yes, you can have a full and happy and functional life. In fact, you're going to go live your life as you want, despite the condition, as best you can to whatever limitations your physical health has on you, this physical condition has. So the question for you is, what have you been putting off? Do those things. What have you been avoiding? 
do those things. What have you been doing instead? Stop doing those things. Go and schedule your life. Go and live your life to the best degree that you can, knowing that it ain't going to be perfect. You're not going to be able to do all the things that you want to do. None of us can, but those of us with health issues is that we can't do everything that we want to do with the, quote, regular person could do. But that's okay. We're going to go out and live the best life that we can. And that'll be your job. So all of this is just different ways that you can manage that anxiety. So um, hopefully some of that is helpful. But um, I do appreciate this question. because I think uh, 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 a lot of folks would have questions about this if they are kind of going through the same situation. So Hillary, thanks so much and best of luck. So this next question comes from Luke. Luke says, I suffer from hyper-awareness OCD with an obsessive fixation on eye floaters. My question is this. I know the gold standard of treatment for sensory motor OCD is ACT because the sensations that we're obsessing over are normal, natural, and generally permanent. Eye floaters are a bit more insidious because there are treatments that can help mitigate or even get rid of them. Um, now, I'll say this. Luke then lists a bunch of things that I cannot pronounce any of the words. The, the only one is laser. I know what laser means. The rest of them, I don't know. There's an ectomy somewhere in there. Anyhow, there are treatments their treatments. All right. Um, he says, however, these treatments can be high risk. The result is a constant weighing of the trade-offs between learning to accept your floaters, getting a risky treatment, or holding out hope for a safe treatment. And then his question, how do you accept something as permanent when it isn't necessarily? Right? All right. So, Luke, thank you so much for that question. Um, Gosh, that's a really good question. Um, and I think to a certain degree, it ties back into Hillary's question too. All right, so how do we accept something as permanent when it isn't? Well, the two things that came to mind for me are, are, are two, two main questions that came to mind. Number one, what is the cost of the fixed? And two, what is the effectiveness of the fix? Now, I think these two questions are really important because it's the case, it's, it is going to be the case with any compulsion that you and I can ever experience or do, or anything that you and I are ever going to do, compulsion or not, right? It's how easy is the compulsion to do and will actually solve the problem. Often, compulsive cycles will begin with this easy suggestion. Hey, just, just wash your hands again. Hey, why, why don't you just go back and check? Just go back and check, check real quick. Hey, uh, why don't you change the channel or why don't you change the volume, Right? one up, one down. It's super easy, right? And it gets rid of the anxiety, but it eventually returns. Now, if we think about with panic attack or with generalized anxiety, right, that can be a check. It can be a, you know, let's just reschedule. Let's just not go on this trip, right? Let's have my friend drive, right? It's easy, but again, it, it the, that anxiety will return, which suggests that the effectiveness of the compulsion is lacking, Unfortunately, while the the resulting you know kind of relief and certainty is is temporary, because here's the problem: it works. Compulsions work for a short period of time. the The result is lacking, so you're going to have to up your behavior, meaning the cost goes up. At some point in that process of the cost going up and us paying it, and then the effectiveness wearing off, at some point, people either catch on that the fix is not effective, or they're no longer willing to pay the price, or they just accept the cycle that they're in. 
So Luke, to your question, to the super rich person, any of the, the ridiculous treatments that you mentioned may be possible and, you know what, financially easy to do. So therefore, for them, the cost is going to be low. But to the rest of us, the cost may be way too high. But it's out there. So, But even if you did do it, it's not a guarantee that it'll work permanently, right? Furthermore, there could be those side effects, there could be those funky things that could happen, even to the super rich person. So, the effectiveness of the fix is not going to be perfect, right? So, you're weighing the pros and cons, obviously. So, a couple of the ways to help accept something that may be out of reach so the first question is, and I think this is for anybody when we're considering a, a quote, a fix for a problem. First ask, is the cost worth it to you? And to be fair, this is a real question to deal with. And with some things, we consult our friends and family. We read up on it, right? With some of these big things, and I suppose with even with small things, again, this can be compulsive, right? Any good thing can become compulsive. If you're wondering what kind of burger to get when you're out with friends, you hey, which would you get, Joe, this or this? And they'll say that. And you go, oh, okay, cool. And you go with it. I mean, small problem. It, I, I don't know, but it's or small cost of asking. But obviously, is the intensity there? How often is it there? What impact does it have in your life, etc.? But for big things like surgery, we, we consult our friends. We think about it. We, cons we, we think about the, in the impact of it. Surgery is, is heavy and it's important to consider. So we take into account the pros and cons, the potential benefits, and the possible failure. Included in that, we think about the side effects and the dangers in that surgery. And we think about whether or not you and I are willing to shoulder those consequences. Because if we just say, man, the possibility of this is just not worth it, well, then there's, there's your answer, right? You're simply going to say, well, no, I don't want to shoulder the even small possibility that that's going to happen. So we don't do it. Because nothing out there is risk-free. Even just simple behavioral treatment with, with let's say, me. I, I, I'm not administering medication. I'm not, having, I'm not having you do surgery, right? We're talking. We're doing some, some activities and some exercises, but we're talking, right? There are still risks when it comes to psychotherapy. Any therapist is going to have those risks listed out in their consent for services. The, the consequences of drinking water, if you drink too much water, you can die, there are consequences, right? But we risk, we weigh the pros and cons when we look at the effectiveness of drinking water. Well, drinking water is still going to be important, so I'm going to keep doing it. All right, to your question, Luke, meandering on. Um, I'm going to assume the cost is too either financially high or the risk is too high for you in this. And you've said, I'm not willing to do it. Okay, so here's what I'd love for you to do. Number two is to Catch yourself in and resist the rumination of how your life would be so much better if you could just have that surgery, or if the awareness would just go away, meaning if your symptoms would just go away. Ah, oh, how beautiful would that be if just, you know, you could just go get that surgery and just take care of it. It'd be gone, and life would be so much better. This wishing compulsion is just that. It's a compulsion. The thought process and the dreaming, while temporarily fun and kind of uplifts you out of the moment, it's a compulsion. And it can appear as a lot of things. It can appear as, boy, you know, I'd be so happy if blank, or uh, if only blank. Commonly, it's going to be, you know, if this thought would just go away, I would blank, right? In other words, until this 
attention to my floaters goes away, um, I can't be happy. I can't move on with my life. Nothing can improve until I get rid of them. This is almost the same trap that perhaps Hillary was talking about in the first question. All right, so now that you've caught yourself in this rumination process, and hopefully you're going to hold back from getting back into that wish compulsion, well, what does that do? It leaves us here in the moment with our floaters. So then what do you do? Brings me to number three. Make space in your life for that floater. Consider kind of writing them a formal invitation into your life. You can say, you're welcome to stay, floaters. You're going to tell them that, and you're going to tell yourself, these aren't a problem. And you will not be pursuing them or persecuting them any longer. However, they will not get the attention that they have been getting thus far. You're cutting them off. Yes, of course, they'll be there. But you think about this. It's like as if you're, you're calling a ceasefire with your enemy. So you're not going to be actively trying to get rid of them. But while there's the ceasefire, you also don't have to go into business with them, right? You don't have to have them over at every holiday and just say, well, they're here all the time and I'm going to get, um, you know, eye floater tattooed right above my eyes or, or, you know, on my arm with a little bit heart around it. We don't need to do any of that. But we're just going to say, you're going to be there and I'm going to be here. Sometimes you're going to come into my attention, but sometimes you are not. Okay. So acknowledge that they are there and resist that urge to think about how happy you'd be if they weren't there. Attempting also to redirect your attention elsewhere in your life. So towards the other stuff that you value, right? Towards work, towards your relationships, towards reading that book, towards, you know, looking at the clouds. Kind of for the average person, you know, if you want to see eye floaters and you, you haven't seen them before, to the average person, look up at the sky, like a like a, a, a clear sky or even like a white piece of paper even. Um, you might see them. You might see them at some point. Now, the difference between you and the average person, you who do not concern themselves with floaters, is that you see them and you go, oh, that's weird. And you move on. That's the same for like a breathing hyper-awareness or a swallowing hyper-awareness. It's like you go, oh, I'm breathing or my heart's racing or, um, oh, I felt that tingling in the whatever part of my body. You go, hmm, weird, whatever, and you move on. Luke, you're practicing that. You're practicing that perspective. It's difficult at first. I acknowledge that. Now, of course, there are other things that you can do to manage the, the obsession, but, but you asked about what do you do to accept the, the, that something is permanent without it being without it necessarily being permanent. Well, acknowledge that the cost of the fix, the cost of the surgery, um, for whatever reason, is just too stinking high for you. That's okay. So you know that it's out there. You know it's a possibility. If situations in your life change, well, maybe you you would look into it differently, right? But as of right now, you're not. So until you get proof or evidence that the situation that you're in has changed, all of a sudden you come into a gaggle of money, or they come out with this, this treatment that may be a gaggle of money, but it is risk-free, right? I don't think this is going to ever happen, but let's say it did. Well, that will change the story, but until then, you're not going to. You're going to go live your life going, well, this thing is here. Uh, my lungs are here. My sinuses are here. And they're not going away. I suppose I could get a lung transplant, but the cost and the risks for me are too stinking high. So I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to do the best that I can with what I have. 
and, and Hillary's doing the same. So that can be some of the perspective. So it's it's both a change in the, the way that you describe it to yourself, the way that you address it, and the way that you live life with it is going to be the biggest thing for you. So Luke, I hope this um, I hope this addresses your concern. I hope this helps to give you some sort of direction and hope that you can overcome this. So thank you again for the question. everybody. This last question comes from Travis. Travis says, I've read articles, watched videos, and listened to podcasts, including this one, thank you very much, about POCD, that's pedophile OCD for the uninitiated, um, and they seem to describe what I have. However, I don't fit the OCD diagnostic criteria of having the obsession slash compulsions take more than an hour a day, um, as children are not a prominent presence in my life, so I can go days without coming across any triggers. Does this mean I don't have it. Travis, I love this question. I love this question because it made me relook up the diagnostic criteria for OCD. Sometimes it's helpful to get those reminders and just kind of read through uh, what that is. Because I was going, hour a day, one, it kind of jogged a little thought in my head. But two, I was going, where are you getting an hour a day? Where does it say that? I'll tell you where it says that. It says in the DSM-5. So the DSM-5 is what uh, we in America use. Um, I think other countries might use it, but we in America do it because the uh, American uh, Psychiatric Association puts it together. The DSM stands for Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and this is the fifth edition. Um, it has gone through a lot of changes. It is not a perfect book, but it helps in giving therapists, clinicians, doctors, psychiatrists an idea about what we're seeing. So, my answer to you, Travis, is yes, you can still have OCD if that's what you wanted me to say. If that is not what you wanted me to say, I apologize. But yes, based on what you are talking about, you can still have it. Now, Travis, uh, to go over some of the, the clinical definition for OCD, I'm not going to go over the whole thing. If you um, if you out there are interested in reading the definition, you can just Google DSM-5 and then, or DSM-V, probably doesn't matter anyways, um, uh, for OCD. So here you go. Um, so, it's, so the first part talks about, it, it defines what obsessions are and compulsions. It says you have to have both. And then it, it goes into a bunch of other different points where it talks about uh, other things to consider as a clinician maybe formulating his or her diagnosis. So within this, one of the things that it says immediately after the discussion of obsessions and compulsions, and again, saying that um, that someone who has OCD will exhibit these two things. And it then says, it says the obsessions and compulsions are time consuming. And then here's the thing, it says in parentheses or in brackets, it says an example of time consuming. Because time consuming is broad, it's vague, right? What is time consuming? Time consuming, like is five minutes time consuming, right? Is four days time consuming? right? It's, it, it's not very helpful. So it says, all right, here's an example of what time consuming could mean. It says, for example, take more than one hour per day. So that's their example. Now, does that mean that that is a diagnostic requirement for you? No. As a clinician, I'm going to say the one hour per day is not a requirement, but it is one of the examples because taking an hour a day of thinking or doing an activity is time consuming. But again, there are a lot of things that we do during the day that are not time-consuming and are not problematic, or that we don't label as time-consuming, right? Um, we just kind of label them as part of our day. Some of us have a commute that is an hour long. Now, it is time-consuming, but we also may not say it's, it, it's, it's a problem, right? 
So, because I also want to uh, move on in this point is that it says the obsessions compulsions are time consuming. It says, but after the bracket, it says, or cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. So for you, the obsessions and compulsions may not be time consuming, but my question to you is, are they causing clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning? That sounds very dry, but that's the language that it uses. So you might go very long stretches without having the trigger, but when you have them, do you obsess upon it? Do you worry about it? Do you stress about it? Do you do a lot of things to try to get rid of that thought or to try to give yourself reassurance or to get yourself back to baseline that is causing distress or impairment in various areas of your life? As a clinician, if I'm trying to make a diagnosis for somebody, um, I'm going to be looking at all of that. I'm going to be looking at whether or not you're having these thoughts and whether or not they are causing significant distress or impairment. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, a hobby is time consuming and it requires a lot of energy and thought an activity, right? I am constantly, I am constantly obsessing, I put that a little O, obsessing about music gear. That's my hobby, buying and selling and trading music gear. Um, I've come into some super cool gear lately. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with it, but it's time consuming. It, I probably look at it here and there for about an hour a day. That sounds like a lot, and it is. It is a lot. But does it cause distress or impairment in my life? No. There are times when it is more it is more impairing, meaning that it is more distracting in my life, and sometimes it's harder for me to focus. But am I going to elevate that to the point where it's causing distress or impairment? No, I don't think it's, a, it's of clinical concern, um, though obviously it could. So as that uh, definition of, uh, of OCD continues to go down, the only other thing that I would consider um, further in making a, a diagnosis for you, Travis, um, would be whether or not the anxiety about children can be better explained by another mental health condition. And this is some of the other stuff that um, is part of um, what's called differential diagnosis um, in therapy town. Um, and essentially what that just means is, um, again, is, is are the symptoms that we're talking about, are they better explained by something else? Some of those things could be generalized anxiety, it can be trauma, um, it, it can be a lot of different things, um, but that is something to, dis to discuss and unpack and kind of process through within the context of therapy. But um, all of that is to say that, that the diagnoses that we're talking about here are to a certain degree vague, but they're also intentionally vague. Um, the final diagnosis ought to be made by a clinician who has experience, who, who knows what, who has seen a lot of these symptoms. Um, uh, oddly enough, the, the problem with being a, a psychology student, this happens all the time. Every psych student who goes through psych one or they go through um, abnormal psych in college, um, they start reading about these various diagnoses. And here's what they do. They diagnose everybody they know with weird diagnoses because they go, oh, they do this thing. They must have, and then they list off, you know, dysthymia. Or they must have, um, oh, my, my cousin is kind of hot and cold. They must have um, uh, uh, bipolar two, um, you know, chronic bipolar 2. They, they come up with these crazy diagnoses. Um, and it's because they don't have the experience to see the nuances of it. But what I would say to you, to your question is uh, about whether or not you can still have it based on the symptoms that you're describing. You can, you can. Um, again, I don't know if that's the answer you wanted to hear. It's the answer I'm given. So if you're concerned about it, Travis, go chat with a psychologist, go chat with a therapist of some type um, who knows what they're doing. And you can talk about how impactful those triggers are 
car on you? What what sort of impact and you know negative are they having in your life? Um, and is there anything that you can reasonably do to address them? Are you putting things off in your life? Are you doing compulsions that are getting in the way of your life that you find problematic and don't like? Those are some things that you and a clinician can start working on and pulling back on some of those, addressing some of that fear and working towards habituation, but also ultimately learning that you can handle the times, you know, every couple of days, every couple of weeks when you do get that trigger and you're going to be able to say, all right, I can live my life. I don't see kids very often, but when I do, they make me nervous, but man, I can deal with it. I can deal with it without having to do all this other crap convulsions. You get the idea. All right. So, Travis, I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much for it. Uh, it, was a, it it's a really good question. And it's a really important one. I think a, a, a lot of folks would have this concern. Do you have this concern? Do they qualify? Am I this? At the very least, Travis, it's more stuff to think about. So, again, thank you so much for your question. All right, everybody who made it through uh, this episode, thank you so much for your patience, for getting through it. You did it. Congratulations. All right, everybody, please remember, um, if you like the show, if you want it to be better, let me know how we can make it better. If you think it's great, awesome. I want to know about, I would love to hear that too. Um, it's encouraging to know that I'm doing something right. That sounds kind of weird. But um, if you have some feedback for me, go over to fearcastpodcast.com backslash survey and uh, message me there. Um, if you have uh, any questions for a future episode, if you have any follow-up questions to the those that I answered in this episode, um, if you think I missed something and just totally flubbed it, or if you think that you, if you'd like to add something, um, message me over at fearcastpodcast.com. Um, it, it'll be through the uh, submit a question, ask a question link there. Um, and just let me know and I'll add it and tack it on to a future episode. So everybody out there, thank you so much for listening to the uh, Fearcast. It really does mean a lot to me that that uh, you'd consider doing this or consider listening to this. Please remember, everybody, if you like the show, subscribe, like, thumbs up, star, write a review as well. Um, but more importantly, tell someone about it um, that you feel would benefit from it. Please remember, everybody, as per usual, the Fearcast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about treatment uh, and or need a little bit more support, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and there's going to be the uh, find help link and there'll be some uh, uh, help helpful tips and some links and stuff like that there for you all right everybody until then until next time rather take a risk challenge yourself and don't take your brain too seriously 